I built you that home and that one too. I built you that home and that one too. You tore it down and dug the earth. You tore it down and dug the earth. Collective Imaginings is a Light Plus podcast series from Lighthouse, curated and hosted by me, Jamila Prowse. The roots of this series were planted in January 2020, although the thinking behind them predates even that. In the time that I have planned them, researched them, begun dialogues with the collaborators whose words form them, the world we exist within has changed significantly. During the eight months before we came to record the first episode, my thinking and approach as a curator has unravelled entirely, due to my own learnings and reflections, as well as harmful experiences I have been through in this sector. I am no longer sure if I wish to curate. I am no longer sure of the value of having conversations in public. As I share these conversations with you, I have unraveled and doubted the meaning of them and their worth so many times. As cultural workers, we are routinely bound and compromised in what we can share publicly. Although in this series, I was given free creative control, a rare thing, Many of us are still bound by contractual clauses. Even as I make a series about our embodied experiences of harm, I cannot explicitly name the beast I refer to. So where does the value in this series stem from? Throughout this series, I'll be speaking to cultural workers, including artists and curators, who have been through and continue to think through their own processes of learning and unlearning, resistance and radical imagining. Their work and ideas have helped me to better understand the reasons I was originally drawn and connected to art making and cultural organising. The conversations that follow are not complete, exhaustive or final. They are snippets into possibilities and imaginings which have helped me to better understand myself and my positioning in the world. I hope they might help you reach insights and learnings of your own. This series was originally intended as an open resource for people interested in, or entering into, or working within the arts, of personal accounts of navigating the sector and strategies for resistance, self-preservation, and survival. In many ways, a series I wish I would have had when starting out in the sector, as someone who has continually felt lost, overwhelmed, and squashed, and one that would also be invaluable to me today. I have come to realise through these conversations and my wider research that survival is not and will never be enough. We need to be able to do more than survive. Even still, I hope that these personal accounts come together in a collective radical imagining for the art world we hope to bring into fruition. Collective imaginings stems from, and is a continuation of, thinking which took place in and around Eva Rosen's 2019 curatorial residency at Lighthouse, Who's Doing the Washing Up? Where's the Sink? which included a Light Plus podcast of the same name. In this episode, I'll be speaking to curator and co-founder of La Sala, a feminist collective space for biodiversity, sustainability and care, Lucy Lopez, and curator, producer and researcher, Rachel Noel, who is presently the convener of the Young People's Programme at Tate, where she led the research project Where Does Culture Happen? between Tenton Rotterdam and Tate in London. 
We'll be discussing what it might mean to practice from a place of care in the arts and why it's key to prioritise space for downtime and rest as a curator. Thank you both for joining me. Um, it's quite a strange uh, way to be doing this because we're obviously doing everything remotely and actually none of us have met each other in person before, have we? No. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm really pleased to be having this conversation with you. Um, okay, so um, how are you both feeling, Lucy? Um, I feel good. <laughs> yeah. And Rachel, how are you doing? I think I'm good. I think I'm good. I'm happy that it's Friday and the sun is shining, feeling calm. Yeah, it's nice. I have the sun coming into the room that I'm in, so I'm like kind of basking in it at the same time. <laughs> yeah. um, so Lucy and Rachel, you both have experience of working within institutions, but you also prioritise less formalised ways of working and reference cultural meeting places outside of the institution in your work. So Lucy in LaSala's founding manifesto, this is the kitchen table and Rachel and where does culture happen the street the corner shop the dance floor our various homes are all referenced so I want to know what is possible when we organize and come together in these informal spaces um Lucy do you want to start us off yeah sure um in general I mean you mentioned La Sala specifically um but in general I've always kind of tried to prioritize those informal spaces of gathering and thinking together and seeing that as a kind of antidote to the more like formal institutional environment. So often that's meant um, when working within institutions using like architecture and design to build structures or sort of temporary infrastructures, which might sit inside of institutions, but also offer different kind of modes of learning or being together um, and really foregrounding that informality and I guess togetherness over a more polished form of exhibition making or display. Mm -hmm. But I think for me, it's also a way to think about how that space can function as a political space. Um, mm. So learning something from all of the wonderful artistic practices that kind of function in that in-between space and use art as a way to like imagine new worlds, new ways of being. Yeah, but you asked specifically about La Sala, which is a little space in Nottingham that myself and Alba Colomo have initiated. It's not an exhibition space at all. Um, it's in normal times would have been um, a space for workshops, for talks and dinners and for us to work together and with others. And I guess, yeah, Alba and I really came together through thinking about what was not working, what was malfunctioning in institutional spaces. And when we started talking about La Sala, the idea of the kitchen table as a space for informality, cooking, eating, preserving, talking, um, that was really at the heart of what we were imagining. And I guess that space just kind of offers something more familiar, a different way to welcome people in. And I, something else really nice, um, I was just talking uh, to Alba about this earlier, that she was telling me about a phrase from, she spent some time recently in the Canary Islands and some friends of us who have a biodynamic farm there, they use this phrase, um, it's like Torre de Tierra, um, which is about like uh, getting your hands in the soil, in the earth or taking from the earth and talking about how as a way of welcoming someone, they invite you to basically get your hands dirty. And I think that was really interesting for us, like the idea that when we invite someone into La Sala and you have that kind of kitchen space, you're inviting someone to be part of that. So to cook or ferment with us whilst we talk. And that felt really important somehow. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's interesting because I suppose as art workers, we find ourselves in these more traditional spaces quite often. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm constantly thinking about whether that kind of comfortability ever comes of like going mm-hmm. into an invigilated white walled space. I'm so mm-hmm. self-conscious moving around those spaces, so mm-hmm. aware of myself. And mm-hmm. something completely different happens when you bring food or something that is more, as you say, familiar into that setting. Mm-hmm. Um, a kind of comfortability and this kind of organicness to mm-hmm. the conversations kind of being more free-flowing. Do you kind of feel yourself drawn, Lucy, much more towards those those more informal spaces than kind of more traditional institutionalised gallery spaces? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I suppose. Well, I think I think we've all experienced that, haven't we? Like what you speak of, that kind of how it feels when you enter that kind of space where you maybe you don't feel welcome. And I think it is about welcoming. And um, there's something about uh, doing something together, entering a space and and being part of something, or doing something with your hands that just breaks through that. Um, yeah that that feeling of formality somehow and for me personally I've always appreciated those kind of interactions and spaces so I think that's I guess that's part of how we wanted to open that space out to people yeah and Rachel how about you because I suppose you have this experience of treading these two very uh kind of I mean, they can be complementary in some ways, but also quite antithetical spaces of kind of the institution, but also these these far less formal spaces. What do you feel is possible when we when we kind of meet and organise in those yeah. the more informal spaces? I think it's yeah. I think a lot of my work sits at the um, I suppose the intersection between the kind of the the institutional and the, the much more kind of communal, the familiar. Um, and I think it's really interesting, Lucy, that you mentioned welcome so much, because I think that's something that, um, yeah, I really centre in my work. And um, I think a lot of my work is centred around um, conditions, actually, and thinking about um, environments that kind of allow us and allow people to be their true selves. You know, we all know how to be in a home, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was really influenced by Abundance Matanda's essay, The First Gallery I Knew of Black Homes, um, which I just think is such a wonderful, uh, makes a, such a wonderful kind of series of connections between um, culture and the uh, the gathering of culture, the creation of culture, the consumption of culture, the display of culture, um, and how that kind of starts in the home. Um, and I just, yeah, I think I'm really interested in in the way that um, environments allow us to be in different mm-hmm. spaces and what that uh, what that can enable. Um, so through the project that you've mentioned, where does culture happen? I suppose we have been really interested in exploring. Um, I suppose the, the relationship uh, between the gallery or the arts organisation to the communities. Um, and when we started that that project we had a conversation about, I suppose, kind of tracing an artwork from the artist studio, from creation into those, uh, into kind of the art, you know, our arts organisations, um, galleries, museums, etc. Um, and actually how many of those through process of, processes of exclusion wouldn't make it. Um, I think something that I'm interested in is, uh, I suppose, in a way um, that, art speaks to us in a, in ways that language can't. I think there's something really similar um, around space as well um, and what 
we what we kind of allow ourselves to do or what is possible within spaces. Um, I think the conversation, for example, that you we have um, in our personal spaces, uh, in our community spaces, in our local spaces, um, in spaces that feel familiar to us, um, are completely different to those in which uh, we don't feel welcome. Um, and that's what I'm really interested in is, uh, I suppose, the kind of conditions around those spaces and what those spaces can allow uh, to be possible. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I guess a lot of what you both are drawing out is the sense of belonging and who belongs in cultural spaces, but also what um, kind of cultural output we view as valuable within society. And of course, I mean, the, the essay that you mentioned, Rachel, um, which is a really beautiful essay that I return to quite regularly and mm-hmm. um, is actually published as part of the, the publication that you, you made um, with Where Does Culture Happen? Um, but the sense that actually there is art making and kind of cultural value in so many of our familiar spaces that are kind of outside of these institutional settings that occur in our homes and on our streets, uh, like in our clubs, there are so many, you know, at our kitchen tables, there's a huge array of places that we kind of connect culturally and connect in creative ways. Um, and while we're on that project, Rachel, I just I wanted to to talk about the idea of locality that kind of comes through, um, because when you were doing research around where does culture happen, you were working between Tent in Rotterdam and Tate in London. And I mm-hmm. wonder how did you build kind of connections and community between those two localities? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I suppose the um, I think the wonderful thing about that project was um it was, uh, you know, in theory, on paper, it was created by two institutions, but actually the process of creating that project came about in a very um, informal way. Um, and it started, I suppose, with kind of real relationships between programmers um, in both cities. And uh, I suppose it, it was it was unusual for us in terms of uh, it kind of, it was a natural, you know, it started through conversation and came about naturally rather than, uh, you know, there being a funding bid or a kind of more formal beginning to to a project. So it came about through um, the conversations in spaces um, like we've been speaking about. So in kitchen, in kitchen spaces, around kitchen tables, um, in bars and pubs, etc. Um, and I think something that kind of followed through the life of that project was really about kind of exploring um, the life of the of the conversation rather than um you know starting out wanting to kind of create a, a project and create a, a community and actually the the conversations we were having in the very beginning were about this idea of um the the gallery as a civic space and its relationship to the city um, and that project was between two institutions so one very large in London one much smaller um, in Rotterdam um, and actually they both faced the very uh, very similar um, processes of inclusion and ex- exclusion in terms of um, the work that would be shown the staff in the workforce the um, the audiences in those spaces. So we were looking to explore a similar question in terms of how those spaces related directly to those communities who are producing culture. Um, and Rotterdam is one of the uh, is the most diverse city per capita in Europe. So they, so we've got we've both got very interesting um, and you know rich diverse populations. 
but the you know the obviously the the work that is is shown not necessarily representing that so I think what was interesting was it started with a kind of very informal series of conversations um and actually I think what happened through that project was was um that we didn't actually set out to start a community um but that kind of happened as uh, through the process. Um, and again, I think it comes back to um, the conditions of the project. So um, very much being led by young people, young thinkers, young makers, um, young cultural producers in each space, um, and then really having um, a, a blank canvas, if you like, with the project. I think I mean, my practice is working with young people and quite often there can be, uh, when working with institutions, there could be quite a, a, a kind of strong set of uh, restrictions that actually young people are um, having to work within. Um, and this being a, an international exchange allowed a lot more freedom, a lot more, um, I suppose, distance from an institution as well for young people to experiment and lead um, and uh, connect with each other around something between both cities. Um, and the project evolved over uh, three or four years. Um, so we did a number of exchanges um, and ran workshops, involved um, artists and makers and thinkers, um, community leaders, activists in each city. Um, and with the final uh, leg, we invited um, some people in each city to invite us to a place where they felt that culture happened. And so it was very much about um, exploring, you know, the very spaces. So we were in London, we were in Peckham, um, we were looking at the new development in Battersea, interestingly, and the way that art and public art has been used um, to tell a narrative to the, to the city and to the residents. And I think, yeah, there was... I suppose there was a kind of set of conditions around that project that allowed a community to um, to emerge. Um, and I think, yeah, there was a, I think we learned a lot from that project as well, working in a large institution in London and the, yeah, I suppose the kind of protocols around projects and the way in which learning projects are produced um, and actually working with a much smaller institution, a much smaller organisation in, in Rotterdam um, and the freedom that that enabled, um, I think really um, allowed us to, to, I suppose, bring a sense of um, informality to the project um, and uh, to really focus on the, the connections between people and the conversations between people being the work and being the project and that experimenting with kind of spaces and how... Um, yeah, I suppose the culture that we are exploring that maybe isn't making its way into our cultural institutions is happening, um, yeah, in nightclubs and round kitchen tables and uh, in local restaurants and that being that being part of the work. I mean, it's interesting how you draw that out as well, the idea of the connections between the people being the work itself, because that really comes across in the kind of publication that you produce. There are these really beautiful conversations between the people involved in the project that are kind of happening across these two localities. Uh, you know, sometimes one person from Rotterdam, one person from London, and they are drawing out really organically all these connections between the ways that they work, the ways that they kind of exist and respond to culture and society around them mm -hmm. and is that something that kind of stayed with you because I suppose 
simultaneously you were building all those connections with those people and and seeing mm-hmm. all of these these new kind of journeys and routes come through these two communities it really did and it was something that kind of um again that we didn't necessarily set out you know we set out to um run an exchange program between young people in london and rotterdam to explore this question where does culture happen and we cited young people as young researchers um who were um kind of capturing and holding these conversations and speaking to um so many different people in each city to kind of um, interrogate this question um but i suppose as kind of one of those uh unexpected outcomes of the project was that you know there's uh, the young people many of the young people are still in contact with each other are still collaborating with each other connections have been made between um, some of the artists and young people that are continuing to this day um, I'm definitely still um, very involved and connected to a lot of the people from that project too and just um, I think a really for me a really um, beautiful kind of output of the project um, was in the final year we hosted a group in Rotterdam um, and usually we'd kind of jump straight into uh, programming or there'd be a far more kind of logistical finding people their rooms their accommodation etc um, whereas we decided to start this time with um, I suppose a, a kind of more formalized um, informal welcome um, so that involved kind of hosting a space within the gallery and um, we had roti from uh, one of my neighbors who runs a roti business uh, we had food we had drinks um, we invited a researcher who is um, exploring similar themes to us um, but within India and working with young people um and uh, smartphones and technology and doing lots of really interesting work in terms of where culture happens in India um, to give us a presentation. And so that kind of spearheaded and started the conversation. Um, But that space, I think, um, really spoke to me in terms of where where this project had, how this project had kind of um, started as a series of kind of informal conversations and it had had formal moments. We'd had panel discussions, we'd had, uh, we'd produced films, there's been um, events at both galleries, um, but actually that this to me felt like the work um, and the connections that were made um, there, I think feel, uh, yeah, I think that feels like the work. And we had this conversation when we were putting together the publication in terms of who do we want this this conversation to be for, you know, who do we want to put together this publication for? Um, And initially there was a conversation about um, it being for directors and decision makers um, in the cultural sector. And after a while, um, it just became really clear to us that actually this this project is actually about connecting these communities in in both cities. Um, And we want to be able to, through this publication, to connect um, those conversations in a much more um, formal way. Um, so some of the people who are in contact with each other in that publication may not have necessarily met, but they've both they had both previously contributed to a conversation. So it felt like us, um, the publication was a way of bringing those conversations and those communities together. Yeah, I think that really comes through in a in a beautiful way. And it's it's interesting that when you're talking about this, there is this kind of sense of the whole project stemming from this really organic place. And it becomes clear that that so much more can be sometimes possible when you don't start from this really formalized 
space of kind of responding to funding bids and having to kind of um, gear a project around the specific outputs, the specific people that it's going to intend to reach because so much is unforeseen. And I suppose that actually this is a process, Lucy, that you're going through as well with Alba and Lasala in terms of thinking through you ha- how you actually kind of begin those stories and begin mm. the connections and and roots of a space um and when you talk about it in your um you've produced this this really wonderful kind of founding manifesto of of some of the ways that you want your work to um to kind of stem from and um the different things that you want to speak to and and hold yourself to mm-hmm. and you talk about this idea of prioritizing the slow fermentation of an institution i'm wondering if you can draw out a bit more where that idea comes from and um what brought you to it it's at such a different place I mean talking talking about tent or Tate and then talking about something that's so brand new um but I think there's a few things to pull out there and I suppose um yeah I think for both Alba and I um in part it is a reaction to um institutions we've worked with in the past um and I suppose thinking about being um, this idea of slowness has been really important to us. And and of course, like at the moment, there's a whole other layer to that. You know, a lot of people have been forced to be slow in a way that isn't necessarily um, that helpful. You know, it's sort of something we've all had to work through this year in different ways. Um, The idea of slowness, also the idea of care um, and what that means now. But I think um, for us, it's about um, resisting that kind of rush for overproduction um so really thinking about it as a very slow beginning to something um that we hope would kind of continue to be a really porous organization um institution sounds really grand but you know it's very uh, it will always be small i think it will grow from being alba and i to including others but um it will always be quite uh small and porous um but yeah i guess the slowness is um, thinking about a kind of antidote to that real sense of burnout and also extraction, yeah. Um, and I suppose, yeah, I was just thinking about in terms of um, what slowness means now, also what care means now. And um, there's a really beautiful um, text that was written by Johanna Hebter in the sort of beginning of the lockdown period, I think, called Get Well Soon, about the fact that, like, at the moment, we can't um, deny care, like, there's a demand for care for the first time, there's a demand to kind of um, put these things uh, front and centre. And at the same time, there's a total lack um, of ability of our societies to meet that demand for care. And I suppose it's sort of thinking about what it would mean if we if we did demand that, if we continue to demand that care which I think um yeah is is sort of something that unfolds in a slower way um and in terms of fermentation we've used this as a way of thinking about beginnings um and how to begin well so thinking about the time the care the conditions needed to build an institution or an organization um I guess there's a certain uncertainty to fermentation so you can take care with the different elements which you're um the different inputs but ultimately the outcome is unknown um and it felt really important to hold on to that 
unknown aspect. So to bring together different inputs, but allow the outcome to kind of surprise us, um, I guess. And I think in part that is a reaction to that kind of rush to produce. So we wanted to really take the time to think about um, what would be useful now, what kind of organization would make sense. Um, and so much of the time, organizations with really radical seeming statements or programs are actually in practice not working with with those same ideals. That's something I think we're all really familiar with. Um, so I suppose it, it's a way of taking that initial process of becoming really slowly um, and, and being really responsive. Um, yeah, I guess another part of that we've been speaking about the idea of caretakers and caregivers and what that means and how those phrases sometimes mean the same thing. Um, and we're working on bringing together a group of people to work with us as sort of caretakers to think through what La Sala could become. So that's a really important part of that process. Yeah, it's interesting because you're you're talking about so many ways that you were kind of holding yourself to those roots and to the manifesto that you have kind of begun with, knowing mm -hmm. that, that the ideas around it might change and evolve over time. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, as you say, we're very used to the, the sense of um, institutions maybe presenting in one way to the public, but being very different behind closed doors and mm -hmm. the ways that they operate internally. And I think that there's so much that comes through in the sense of the ways that you're bringing other people in as caretakers in the way that you've just described, but also the degree of transparency that is taking place. Um, You've, you've said that you're going to do things like make all of your budgets um, publicly available and just have mm -hmm. this really um, clear view of, of how your internal structures are all kind of growing and mm -hmm. operating. Um, is that also a, a response to kind of experiences you've had in more, <laughs> in, in maybe bigger settings? Um, yeah, I think... I suppose, let's say, uh, it's certainly a response to practices that we see around us. And some of that is our personal experiences, but it's also the experiences of our peers and our friends, you know. Um, and I think I mentioned already, but that discrepancy between what's presented and then what's really happening um, is the thing that feels the most hypocritical. And, and so that uh, through being transparent about those things, even though, you know, we're so tiny, so there's not much to, <laughs> to be transparent about yet. But um, it feels like a way of kind of from the off, just really foregrounding that um, those should, those things should be in communication, you know, and like um, the things that we are researching and programming around are conversations around care, like planetary care and mental health and reproductive labor. And so to really instill that in our working practices, that's something that needs needs to be made visible, I think, from the beginning. Yeah, and I suppose there is this this kind of protective element which which comes through, which Rachel is also present in your practice and the, the ways that you kind of hold space for the people that you work with. Um, Lucy, when you were talking then, you, you, you spoke about this idea of slowness and also about this idea of being an antidote to the kind of um, overworking practices that exist in our sector and also mm. this kind of art world burnout that, that takes place. And in previous conversations that the three of us have had, that's something that's 
come up for us as well of even you know in the short time that we've been in dialogue ensuring that we can take the time to actually protect our energy and take real time off and take time that's maybe outside of the city and in nature and kind of reconnect to ourselves um and it's interesting coming in from this context of of the last few months of being in government uh, lockdown because of COVID and the sense that actually the art world really hasn't slowed down at all. It's really continued to have this really um, quite intensive output online. So, Mm -hmm. you know, even in this moment of reflection, there isn't this slowing down kind of sector-wide so I'm wondering that that personally for both of you as art workers what boundaries do you kind of set for yourselves in order to sustain a practice and actually protect against art world burnout Rachel should we start with you yeah sure um I think it's a really really good question and and I feel like it's something we need to start thinking about a lot earlier when people are coming into the sector because I feel like it's something that we only come across when it happens to us um, mm. and it's far too late at that point. Um, but yeah, I think, um, I think, yeah, there's a lot of processes that I have kind of over the past few years have really found and some of them are, are just are really practical. So one thing that I always try to do is really um, at the beginning of the year, sit down in January and sit down and um, plan time, make sure that there is time off every three months. That mm. feels like a... Um, it's just a personal boundary that I've drawn and it really, it really helps. Um, I always notice when it's getting much closer to that three months and it's just, just ensuring that you've got regular time to step away um, and taking the time for yourself as well to just plan it in, plot it out so that you don't have to run up against finding yourself burnt out and needing to book time off when you don't have, you know, you can't, you can't afford to take the time off for another month or so. Um, so that's something that I always um, aim to do at the beginning of a year and something that I found just, it's just one of those things that you can think about once and never again. And then, you know, you've got that, that time booked in. I think finding space um, for yourself and your ideas as well is really important. Um, and um, your reading, your research. Um, and I think that feels like working in a large institution is just the thing that always runs away. Um, it's the thing that you you plot in for Friday morning and it never, you know, it never gets there. And before you know it, it's the weekend and it's Monday again. So um, ensuring that there is time. Um, and I'm a really big fan of just holding slots in my diary um, to just protect, <laughs> protect my time and protect my space. Um, um, so that I think just plotting in and holding space for yourself. Um, and I found that over lockdown recently, actually, that's been um, something I've been able to do a lot more at lunchtime, whereas usually we're in quite a busy space and it's quite sociable, um, which is brilliant. But it often means it's quite hard to kind of remove yourself from that space to give yourself the, the time um, to go away and read or see some art or um listen to a podcast um so that's something that over lockdown I've kind of re-engineered to be um within my lunch within my lunchtime and again I use Outlook for all of this so um just super practical but I just plot it in and I'll just pop in um whatever it is that articles or as things come up I can kind of plot them into my lunchtime so that I know that um yeah I'm giving myself time to to read the things that I want to um and I think I think um, 
constantly kind of reprioritizing, you know, and I think this this feels um, ever more prevalent in a world that is just is changing and feels like one minute everything is moving so slowly and is paused and the next minute everything is kind of running away with us. Um, and I think constantly kind of taking the, the time to check in on what your week looks like, um, how you're feeling as well. It's something I'm always asking people um, that I work with and, and looking to kind of offer space for conversation or check-ins, um, especially kind of in the wake of the pandemic and lockdown and, and us all kind of moving into working remotely um, and knowing, um, of course, that we're all in such different situations at home and have very different home working lives. Um, and in the wake of Black Lives Matter, um, you know, just checking in the way that that I try to kind of hold space for other people um, and and check in with them just to see, you know, if they're okay and if, if um, a space for a conversation would be good. Kind of doing that for yourself as well um, because it's not something we ask ourselves very often, I don't think. <laughs> you know, are you, are you okay? Um, and do you, what do you need? Um, is there, you know, do I just need to just clear some of these meetings out of my diary because I'm just, I'm starting to get really burnt out or I just need to focus on this one thing or I just, you know, I'm going to have to book a day off next week. Um, so yeah, constantly kind of checking in with yourself as well. Um, and I think also kind of um, just exercising that that flexibility. I think that's something that in the last couple of weeks for me particularly as well, as we kind of, you know, move into a space with the pandemic where um, we, in the beginning, it was all so sudden. And so, um, you know, so I think it felt we were kind of tied to those government uh, announcements every day and there was a kind of rhythm um, and everything was so so big and changing so fast and then we're now in a kind of new space where I suppose w we've kind of gotten used to a certain sense of a certain part of lockdown but there's still a lot of unanswered questions there's still a lot that we don't know so I think just allowing yourself the flexibility to just to be able to just stop um, or to just recognize that we're still living in um, a time of such unprecedented change um, and that, you know, sometimes that can, that, you know, all of all of those questions and all of that thinking that goes on um, in our minds builds up as well. Um, so just to kind of sit with that and ensure that, um, yeah, we're thinking about yourself. Yeah, I mean, part of the reason that I wanted to do this series is just to have an opportunity to speak to people that I uh, really am inspired by their work, but also just to actually ask these questions and have those yeah. those bits of advice for myself yeah. because I guess it's it's something we're all constantly trying to figure out is is how to navigate that space especially when we don't have any kind of blueprint or training around how to care for ourselves and one another um mm. Lucy what kind of strategies have you developed to kind of protect against art world burnout it's such an important it's such an important thing and I would echo um Rachel I think a lot of the time this is something that we come to after that has happened and um when it's too late and I certainly you know my kind of first um institutional curator job I I had a really serious burnout um and and various other things connected to that and so I suppose since then I've really had to prioritize um 
other parts of of life or rather deprioritize work for me on a really practical level like I'm just trying to swim outside as much as possible which in Birmingham you have to be a bit creative for but um, uh, (laughs) yeah in rivers or in Lido's um in the sea when I can get there um but that's a really like uh kind of personal thing um I suppose also uh you know I've spent the last four years doing a PhD so um as well as working freelance alongside that and among that there's um you know it can kind of take over everything um but at the same time you're in control of your own time frame in a way that I hadn't been before and and that can be really helpful um so in a way just not I think knowing um that maybe like that institutional framework was not what I needed um and being okay with stepping outside of that and and trying to do things a bit differently with La Sala for example we've sort of tried to prioritize those as I said earlier like different ways of kind of being together whether that's like sitting and cooking something um or working on growing things together and and I suppose finding those sort of spaces also within work that are more um yeah almost circumventing the thing that's that is burning you out you know we don't actually have to work in ways that (laughs) that induce burnout and I think um that part of the issue is is the institutions that are causing that environment um I guess for me uh, friendships and alliances um those kind of friendships that are sustaining um have really allowed me to keep going um I feel like along the way we sort of gather our own almost alternative art world like the people that you actually want to be in conversation with um and it really helps me to think of that and the peers who are doing this kind of work um yeah just to echo your point um Lucy on um the friendships and the alternative art world as well. I just, I think that's such an important one. Um, I suppose you build your own community of of people that you want to have these conversations with and people that energise you. Um, and whether that's kind of within work or outside, um, it just feels like such an important one. Like, And I've definitely, mm-hmm. over the past, you know, during the pandemic, had many moments of kind of, uh, I suppose, you know where your hope feels compromised or you feel Mm. you feel that burnout coming or you just you can feel um yeah I suppose there are things that can happen sometimes that feel um like they are kind of um yeah having having a great impact on your work and it can feel really heavy um and then having a conversation with uh a group of like-minded people can suddenly just boost you full of energy and you're back you know your cup's full (laughs) Mm. um and that's quite amazing, actually. I think that there's, yeah, it's just a really, I definitely find a lot of um, uh, energy and um, drive and um, nourishment from from like-minded people. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I found like having gone from working in a more kind of traditional institutional setting to working mm-hmm. as a freelancer and kind of setting my own time it takes it takes practice to unlearn all of those kind of restrictions and that actually you can carve out time and space for yourself and I'm mm-hmm. making notes as you go to to say like oh yeah that's a good idea <laughs> <laughs> I should do that I should carve out time in that way and um I guess it's it's really nice then to have this conversation with you both because I suppose so much is about um 
understanding different strategies with each other and, and kind of envisioning those ways to protect ourselves, but also to protect this collective space that we hold within mm -hmm. the arts that maybe is less formal, but also is, is more caring and, and has these ways to really connect to what we need as, as human beings. Um, so when you're talking about those kind of alliances and the, the ways that we collectivize as well, uh, it brings up really interesting points around kind of the ways that we kind of practice and extend care in our communities and collectively throughout our, our kind of through the art, art world. Um, so how do you both practice care for your peers and colleagues within your work? Um, Lucy, do you want to start us off? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think this feels like really extra pertinent right now. Um, and a lot of the time, of course, those working relationships are really intuitive. Um, I guess I try to always foreground care um, to consider if I'm inviting an artist, a designer um, to work with me or an institution that I'm working with, I would always prioritise their well-being. Um, so this might be making sure I'm aware of any access needs um, and that those are heard. Uh, Jamila, you were talking to me recently about the idea of an access rider, which is really brilliant. Um, and it also might be making sure that they're comfortable within the institution that um, I'm kind of holding and making space for them there um, and thinking about how I can best facilitate that relationship. Um, yeah, there are certain things that should go without saying, like making sure the rate of pay is fair, for example. But the other side of that, which I think is equally important and equally neglected, is that the working structures within organisations, institutions, and between management and staff teams, I think we, we see a total lack of care. Um, and at the moment, that's really visible in the kind of pay discrepancies and also redundancies, which are really visible right now, um, as well as the disconnect between the statements that certain organisations made about Black Lives Matter, for example, and then the realities of working in those institutions. Um, a lot of the time, I think care in working relationships should be really simple like paying people well, respecting, valuing their time, paying attention to things like maternity leave, sick pay, mental health. But um, yeah, it's, it's just so often neglected and bad practice is so, so widespread. There's a lot of work to be done. Yeah, and I guess that that's something that through all of us talking as well, it's something that we've all been through and we've we've been on the receiving end of, of needing to set those boundaries ourselves mm -hmm. and what what is lost when they are not present. Um, Rachel, I mean, you work with so many people um, and have to have to think about so many people when you are working. <laughs> How do you kind of what, what are the different techniques you have for, for kind of practicing and extending that care to your peers and colleagues? Yeah, I think um, very similar to, to Lucy, I think um, prioritising well-being um, is always, I always, it's always something that I aim to centre. Um, and I think within that as well, practising equity and it's just understanding that um, care looks very different for um, for people with different, whether it's access needs, whether it's um, inviting artists to work with us in an institution and um, I suppose um, sharing uh, the history, the environment, the kind of the current status of the institution and the environment that they are coming into. Um, something that I always aim to do and the team I work with always aim to offer or create safer spaces. And that really starts with a kind of check-in at the very beginning. Um, so 
uh, yeah, I think um, I think you're totally right in terms of um, the the kind of volume. It's a large program. There's a lot of young people. Um, it's something that we just build into our processes. And I think processes is something that I talk about all the time. And it sounds so dry, but it's something that I think when you're working in institutions and um, we are thinking about care is really important. Um, and that can involve um, when we're recruiting young people to our program that we ensure. Um, yeah, where they're at with mental health, where they're at in terms of um, their basic needs, who we need to be able to contact. Um, I think, uh, as Lucy mentions, um, paying people fairly, um, having kind of regular conversations with people about, um, I suppose, managing their expectations as well. Um, The programme I run, young people are paid, but there is also elements of that programme that um, offer learning experiences. So it's I suppose just I think the 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 overriding um kind of uh thing for me is about being is about being a human um even though there are kind of um a number of you know even though it's a large program and a large institution um and I think this is um the kind of constant trap that institutions fall down, which is uh, that uh, through working together and in large teams and for a large programme, um, the the sense of a, a human approach can be lost. So something I always aim to centre is, um, yeah, I suppose uh, a human relationship and a, and a human sense of care. So really understanding who you're inviting into this space and what they might need from you. Um, and sometimes that uh can look very different to the way that the institution that you are working with um mm. might consider care um and i think it's it's kind of constantly carving out that space and constantly holding space for those people um and understanding those people having a human relationship with those people in order to be able to provide the best possible um care for them to be able to 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 do their job or do their space or participate in the program and show up as themselves yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it is, it's interesting the ways that you talk about building that in then to your program, because I think that in my experience, uh, I've often worked in these kind of self-proclaimed fast-paced environments that mm-hmm. that kind of constantly um, lose this time for reflection and, and attentiveness mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. the needs of the people, whether that is the, the kind of internal team working there or the audiences coming in or the artists that you were working with so much can be lost so Mm. I think that brings us really nicely onto our final question um, which is something that Lucy you actually asked me several weeks ago Um, Mm. is this idea of, of what would a caring institution look like to both of you Rachel do you want to start us off Sure. I think um, just going back to that human approach, I think um, that is something um, that I really think quite a lot about. And I think um, often when we uh, see an institution and an institution's behaviour and you think about the ways in which we hold um, relationships or we um, we kind of care for each other between individuals, um, I think it's about scaling that up. So um, one of the, I think one of the strongest things for me is um, Mia Mingus, who's a a transformative justice writer, um, has created incredible resource around apologising and the four stages of apologising. So um, the first is self-reflection and then apologising and then uh, repairing and creating that change um, in the behaviour. And I think uh, for me, 
humility is really important um, aspect um, for institutions to be able to hold their hands up and say, we got this wrong. Um, we've caused harm um, and we're sorry and we're going to do something about it. Um, I think also, uh, I think having a sense of um, a, I think that the sense of kind of flexibility and the ability to be able to, um, I suppose, shift and move in order to accommodate difference um I think something you know uh I suppose yeah being aware of kind of intersectionalities the different um needs of different audiences different staff members different artists different um people who might be uh engaging with the institution um is 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 so important um and I think one that's able to build genuine trust you know um and to kind of um yeah, build genuine relationships and uh, speak with a genuine voice um, and listen to people. You know, these are public institutions, you know, well, if we're thinking of public institutions, for example, um, these are places we pay our taxes for, you know, and culture is a is a human right. This is something that um, we all have access to and we all have the ability to learn from each other. Um, and I, yeah, for me, I think the the listening, being open and humble is so important to um, uh, institutions remaining relevant and being able to move with um, with new generations and new forms of thinking, ways of thinking, ways of being in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, Mia Mingus as well is a really, her, her resource is a really good way to actually, um, for art workers as well, to think through when accountability has actually been practiced in a in a productive way with people mm. that they, the institutions they work within. Um, Lucy, how about you? Yeah, I mean, um, it's, inter- it's an interesting one. Um, and like you said, Jamila, you know, it's a question I asked you and that's partly because it is pretty much the question of my PhD is um, thinking about what a caring practice in an art institution would look like. And and I guess in one way, I feel like it doesn't exist. Um, <laughs> and certainly not in any of the institutions that we've got. Um, I think for me, it would, it would look like an equitable institution um a truly intersectional team a pay structure that everyone has a role in determining um prioritizing well-being over production um a real commitment to contributing positively to the future of the planet as well like all of this you know is maybe a bit of a dream and sometimes the answer i get to is like that's not maybe that's not possible within the constraints of like of our society, our government having to navigate um, the funding structures that we have, um, like living in extreme neoliberalism, all of these things actually make it difficult for institutions to work in ways that are truly caring. Um, and I think I would agree with a, with a lot of what um, Rachel just said, but I suppose there's, um, yeah, it feels like public institutions, while they should be accessible to all, they're not, um, not in the same way, at least, like people have so many different barriers to um, accessing those spaces. Um, I suppose for me, I the main kind of aspects of what that caring institution would be, would be that it would be responsive, um, that it exists to fulfil a need, and that it has a working structure that's really reflective of its programme. Thank you both for for having this conversation with me. Um, I'm really pleased to kind of start here and and start with you both. Thanks, Jamila. It's a pleasure. (laughs) 
It's been so good. In the next episode of Collective Imaginings, I'll be speaking to curator and film programmer Gemma Desai about her research, This Work Isn't For Us, which reflects on her experiences of working in the film and public sector for the past 10 years and what it means to be a BIPOC cultural worker navigating white institutional settings. Thank you for listening. If we are to leverage real, meaningful change within the cultural sector, we need to begin from a place of collectivising in order to dismantle and oppose the hostile and often inhospitable institutional landscape which has long been the norm. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps other people to find us. You can find out more on Lighthouse's website, lighthouse.org.uk. Thanks to Platform B and our producers, Elijah Peart, Nat Sparda and Ed Apavor. Special thanks to David Richards and Womb for providing the music. The music featured is I Built You Live by Womb and Redcliffe by Brunstein. And thank you to Andrea Ruiz-Bob for designing the series identity. This Light Plus podcast series is supported through Lighthouse's Reimagine Europe programme, funded by Creative Europe.